You have to answer for Santino, Carlo. And welcome back to the Garage Built Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Hallman. I've got a fantastic guest for you this episode, Mr. Dave Perowitz, the King of Flames. He's in town to do the Combat Hero Bike Fest, and we sat down and did a podcast here at Cycle Stop USA in our studio. I always like it when a guest comes in and you can sit down and have a good face-to-face conversation. The podcast is always a little bit better, a little bit different, and we dive into some pretty cool old stories about the way the custom motorcycle industry unfolded and the way it kind of evolved into what it is today. Hey, listen, are you still wearing Dickies? You still buying your work clothes over at Walmart, are you? Are you? Listen, you need to go to 1620USA.com. Talk to my friends over there. Order yourself a shop pant or some of their double-knee utility work pants. They're all made in the United States. They have a lifetime warranty. And yeah, you're going to spend a little bit more, but it's a buy once, cry once proposition. And we're going to help you here at the Garage Built Podcast. Use the code SPEED23 and you're going to save 10% across the board on your entire order. I've had a three-year long, three-and-a-half-year-long partnership with 1620. And I got to be honest with you, the way it came about it was I just ordered some of their clothes and I wouldn't leave them alone. Um, They're fantastic workwear. My favorite are the shop pants. And uh, we've had an unseasonably cold winter here in Florida this time. And I have been wearing all of my uh, 1620 garb and a lot of it because it's been so cold. So go to 1620USA.com. Get yourself some fantastic workwear, the best workwear on the planet. Use the code SPEED23. Throw those dickies in the trash. Do whatever. Light them on fire. Whatever. Give them to goodwill. You're never going to look back. You won't be buying your clothes anymore from uh, from department stores. Go to 1620USA.com and get yourself some made in the United States, the best workwear on the planet. And now it's time for the Garageville Podcast. Yeah, I think we're good. Yeah, you have to learn how to say no or because yes is fucking expensive. Yeah, it's very expensive. If you're not if you're not prepared to walk away from a toxic situation, doesn't matter what the situation is, whether it be a personal friendship, relationship, business, any of that stuff. Customers, I find that the customers that spend, like I have this theory about customers, and you've dealt with people that are a, they have a, they have enough money where it wouldn't matter what fucking price you put on the bike, yeah, they're gonna buy it from you, right? Yeah. And uh, then you have customers that, for them to spend forty or fifty or thirty or whatever thousand dollars, it's a lot for them, yeah. right? And so I always look at like this scaled economy where. Me spending $50,000 on something is very different than somebody who is of high net worth spending $50,000. Oh, it right. Doesn't mean, sure. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't get value or that they should get, not get special treatment. It means that I have customers that come in here that spend all of their money, 
you know, all of their extra cash comes yeah. into our, and our, so they, you know, when you scale that economy to that, it's, it's, it's pretty important that they get, that people get taken care of properly. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I guess I should tell everybody who I'm talking to. I'm with Dave Perowitz um, from Perowitz Cycle Fab in Bridgewater, Mass. Right? Yeah. I I I've been there. I just wanted to make sure I got the name yeah. of the town. Well, right. actually, I'm in Halifax now. Are you okay? Yeah, which is just you know half a block away. Okay. Yeah. When we, I went to the fall foliage in 21, it was it was amazing to me when I went there. How many towns were named? Like there's a Plymouth there. Oh, there's yeah. a, you know what I mean? And yeah. so, and I, I lived where there was our shop when I had it in 03, that was in Plymouth, Michigan. So it's just like, oh yeah, it's funny sure. how the, those names get reappropriated. Yeah. I mean, Bridgewater, um, I mean, I, I run into Bridgewaters in lots of different states. Sure. You know? Yeah. They, 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 they reappropriate that, that name. There's not a lot of places named Detroit though. I think Detroit <laughs> yeah, kind of no. owns that, that. I think it has a, a negative enough term that nobody right. wants to name. If you're building a new city, you're not naming it Detroit. Yeah. Right. That's for sure. <laughs> um, you know, I was trying to think about all the things that we could talk about. And one of the things I, I wanted to start with was and just get it right out of the way was tell me about because we we were watching the other day um in the tv in the show and we were looking at all the big biker build-offs right we were watching those over kind of again yeah. just kind of recharges your battery and stuff sure. and yeah, i had yeah, absolutely i hadn't seen the one that you did against paul yaffe before yeah first time i saw that was this week and i remember vividly the first one that you did against Billy, like I remember every minute of that, right? Like yeah. I'm, I, I watched that and I'm like, okay, the, it's funny to see Corey in those old videos. Oh yeah, I know. Um, but talk about the difference between, because you started in the business in what, 72, 73? 71. 71, okay. So there's 71 to 81, 91. Now we're talking 2001. You're 30 years into this, in this, this economy of custom motorcycling that you helped shape every bit of that and talk about the difference between the industry pre and post discovery channel. Well, discovery channel truly, uh, put a huge, um, blast into the motorcycle industry, uh, especially our industry, the custom bikes. Uh, you know, to give you an example, um, when Titan first came out, right, um, you know there was a local Holly dealer that carried Titans, and I was friends with the the son, and he came by the shop one day, and uh, I said, "So hey, how, how you doing with those Titans?" And he said, "Yeah, we're doing really good. We sold thirty of them," and it's like I was totally taken back. I said, "Billy, how the heck did you ever find?" 30 people that would spend $30,000. They were 30 grand at the time. Yeah. He said, we didn't. He said, those people didn't spend 30. They spent 5,000 and the rest, they financed. Right. So it was 5,000 down and most of them put it on their credit card. Sure. And then they spent, you know, four or 500 a month for the next five years. <laughs> and, you know, I was amazed by that. And at that particular time, uh, for me to build, you know, a full ground up custom, you know, you were probably talking 35,000, sure. you know? Um, and then, you know, it progressed a little bit, but once the discovery hit, oh my God, it was, you know, a hundred thousand 
you know, the going price for a discovery bike was a hundred grand. Um, and you know, I mean, word got around real fast. Sure. You to know, the, you mean to uh, the builders? Or yeah, to the, to to the builders. Okay. And so my first discovery bike, uh, was the red one that I did against Billy. And, um, you know, I mean, it was a cool bike. I ended up riding that bike for at least a year. Right. I rode that bike. And uh, Bobby Seeger, uh, Indian Larry's, uh, you know, Bobby would tell me that, you know, Larry sold, uh, he sold his first bike, I think, for 75, and then he sold the next one for 100. So, you know, that was, you know, what the, you know, what the demand was. And so actually Bobby turned me on to a guy in New Jersey that bought two of Larry's bikes. And so I called him and he ended up buying my discovery bike. Right. And I became really good friends with that guy. And he ended up owning at least one of almost every biker build off. Really? Yeah. He had probably between 40 and 50 custom bikes. Holy shit. And um, a short time after I sold him my first one, um, he started sending me his discovery bikes to go through them. Right. And so I worked on, you know, a good portion of the discovery bikes. He would just have them directly sent to me. He never even asked me what was wrong with them. He didn't ask me anything about them other than how much do I owe you? Yeah. And uh, the guy turned out to be a really good guy. We became really good friends. Uh, built him quite a few bikes. And he was, um, <laughs> you know, he was worth, he had sold his business for like over a hundred million so, you know, he had it going on. Yeah. And um, then he got himself in some trouble and um, ended up losing it all. Jesus Christ. And uh, I ended up buying a few of the bikes back. I bought my Red Discovery bike back. You still have it now? No, I I, I was, uh, I had an, another guy that's a big collector and I built this guy probably 20 bikes. Oh, wow. And... Um, so he has probably, I'd have to say he has the biggest collection of my bikes. Now he's got a private museum, first class place, very private up in Maine. And um, so anyways, to move the story along, my second build was um, in 2006. That with was Paul the yellow Yaffe. one, right? Yeah. yeah. So we started out in Des Moines, Iowa. And uh, so, you know, when we both got to Des Moines, you know, I had, uh, I had probably 20 guys with me and uh, Paul had, you know, a bunch of guys with him. So we got to the parking lot and he pulled his bike out and I pulled my bike out and, you know, I'm anxious to look at his and he's anxious to look at mine. So I go over and look at his, you know, and, and so I said, well, geez, Paul, what are you thinking? Um, you know, how much, uh, how much, you know, what are you going to do? He says, oh, I'm going to sell it. I says, how much? He says, 125,000. I'm like, really? I th you think you can get that? He says, oh, absolutely. 
So I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I had already put a price on my bike of a hundred grand. Right. You know, in my mind, I wasn't going to sell it less than a hundred grand. Well, when Paul said that, I said, you know what? If he can get 125, I can get that for mine. Yeah, sure. I sold mine two days later for 120,000 on the run. Right. Go ahead and get that. I can pause this. Yeah. This is going to be Jody. Yeah, no worries. No worries. Oh, my dog's doing better. Good. That's good to hear. Okay. So, sorry about that. No, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, we talk, you, were you sold your bike two days later for yeah. 120 grand. Yeah. And um, so, you know, and, and then the market just stayed there. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, from, from the discovery from like that era for the next five years, we were probably a year and a half backlogged on 75 to $100,000 bikes. Wow. But, you know, I had a big, big, you know, I had 12,000 square foot shop. I had 10 people working for me. You know, it was a lot different. Yeah. You know, I mean, that money, that big money goes as fast as it comes when you have a machine right. that's just oh, eating absolutely. It up. I, you know, it's the one thing that everybody just kind of has to accept. Like, I feel like, um, had I not seen that stuff on TV, I wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have been encouraged the way I, I was to, to get into the business. Like my dad was already doing it as a hobby, Yeah, but it was not something that, um, that I thought I'd ever even considered. I was just, I had run into with with the Mustang stuff. I had run into that got to be such an expensive sport overnight. Yeah. That where you couldn't be competitive if you weren't. And now it's, it's, obscene i don't know how anybody does yeah it, but you know i saw what was going on on the discovery channel and i was like this, this is unfucking believable and i thought i can i you know when you just see something and you know you can do it like when you're a kid and you see somebody do a cartwheel like i can fuck i can do a cartwheel and you yeah. do a cartwheel right you yeah. don't do a good one but you get you get around and, and i just felt like it was it was uh what i had been waiting to see yeah. Well, you know, we used to have a saying, you know, in that era is like, hey, don't quit your day job because what the Discovery Channel did and the other TV stuff, you know, all that motorcycle TV stuff that was on, it encouraged so many people that, you know, to do that. But in reality, you know, it's like, hey, don't quit your day job because this isn't as easy as it looks like on TV. Right. And for years and years after that, you can't believe how many project bikes I bought, you know, for short, short money because guys thought they could do it themselves. They'd buy all the stuff, stop putting it together in their garage and just realize that they were in way over their head. Yeah, it's not an easy, I always tell people it's, it's, this is the easiest business in the world to get into. It's the hardest business in the world to stay in. Yeah, oh, right. I mean, this is not a, this, believe me, this is not, an easy business to make money at. No. You know, um, fortunately, we've got so many different things going on. Um, you know, at our shop, you know, we do paint, and paint is probably one of our major things. But, you know, we build bikes, we do service. Yeah, you know, so, I mean, there's a lot of different, plus Jody and I are doing, uh, you know, a lot of appearances, we're doing shows. Yeah. You know, we're doing endorsements. So, you know, we've got a lot of little things going on to supplement you know, the amount of money we need to make. And, um, 
But, um, you know, uh, I, I want to tell you about the 2006 Discovery Ride. So uh, I was really, really happy with the bike that I built. And so we, uh, we, we leave um, Des Moines, and our next stop was Denison, Iowa, a little town. And they had a huge uh, gathering waiting for us and everything. And it was really a cool deal. You know, we rode into town. Everybody's waiting for us. And so, you know, we, uh, you know, hung out and partied. And then uh, uh, I ended up at this local bar. And um, so I go to leave this bar. It's like 2 in the morning. And, um, you know, I jump on the bike a little bit and I blow my rear sprocket apart. And now I had a rear pulley, uh, a, bra- a rear brake pulley that a guy, a friend of mine in Denver, he made three of them. A guy named Leo Diorio, good guy, really sharp guy. So now, you know, this, this isn't something that I can just bolt something else onto. Right. And I destroyed this thing. You know, I blew the whole center out of it. And so a couple of guys, and I was by myself. So a couple of guys at the bar that I had talked to, they said, well, we got a trailer. So they, they go home and get a trailer. And I was only a few miles away. They go home and get a trailer. I ride my, you know, I push my bike up in the trailer and I sit on the bike in the trailer with, in the dock. Yeah, no tie downs. Right. No tie downs. So we get back to the hotel, pull my bike out. Now it's, you know, 2.30 in the morning. So the next morning we get up and, you know, of course, everybody's like, oh, what happened? What happened? So Paul comes out and, you know, they're filming me and Paul. And, um, you know, he says, well, listen, you know, why don't you throw it in the trailer? You know, uh, I, there's a guy somewhere that's got a shop. We can take it there and try to fix it. And I'm like, no, nope. I says, I'm going to I'm going to fix it. And I said, I don't want you waiting for me. I said, uh, I'll be at the next stop, whatever town that was. Uh, by the time you finish breakfast tomorrow, I'll be there. So he said, oh, okay. So, <laughs> you know, he left with his whole entourage. entourage with some of the bike, some of the guys from Discovery. And they left one uh, camera guy with us. So I get on the phone. And I call my shop. Now, I've got one at my shop that he sent me, but it's unfinished. And I don't really know how unfinished it is. But Leo had one, and he's in Denver. So I call Leo, and, well, I call my shop first. And so you can't ship it the same day. No. You can't go put it on a plane. It has to be accompanied <clears throat> by a person. Right. So a guy that's with me on the run, another one of the hamsters, John McCarthy, and he's the guy that bought the bike. And <clears throat> so he says, I'm going to have my secretary get on a plane and bring it out here. <clears throat> and it was going to get delivered to um, Nebraska. I forget where. So he sets up a, a plane flight for his secretary and she's going to get in at like nine o'clock at night or something. And, um, uh, so I call Leo and Leo says, geez, mine's at the Chrome shop. 
It's all done, but I haven't picked it up yet. I says, well, listen, Leo, go pick it up and get on a plane and fly out here with it. I need it. So he said, okay. So he goes and gets it. He makes a plane ticket and he flies in at approximately the same time as this girl. So now I got two comments. So one's, one's got to be right, right enough. So we're like three hours from the airport. So me and a couple Jeez. of the guys jump in my truck and we drive three hours. And we get to the airport just at the time that the two of them are getting in. Now, meanwhile, now it's like 95 degrees out. Well, the police, the, the hotel we're staying at, they had a little conference area that was air conditioned. So they let me bring the bike into the conference area. So uh, my friend Wayne and a couple of the other guys, they get the bike up on a box, pull the rear wheel off, you know, get it all ready for me. So we get back. So I take Leo with me. She gets on a plane and flies back to Boston. So we get back to the hotel. It's like midnight. And so I had told all my guys, I said, be outside at 5 a.m. Be gassed up and ready to go. So we get back to the hotel. We get the thing back on. And now it's like four in the morning. So I had time to run back to my room, take a shower, change my clothes, and 5 a.m., everybody's sitting out front waiting, and we left at 5 a.m., and it was mostly back roads to where we were going. In fact, it was all back roads, and we ran into the worst fog bank I have ever seen. I mean, it was like you couldn't even see the guy next to you. The fog was so thick. It was unbelievable. And it was like we were coming down a hill and you could see it ahead. You know, it was like, right. it was like a curtain. And uh, anyways, we pulled into the hotel and Paul was just walking out after having breakfast. No shit. Yep. You know, it's funny when, um, you know, I always tell people like, they, they'll tell me, you know, especially being at a bike shop, everybody wants to tell you, you know, their story of the things that happened, right? So you, you don't remember the time that we all went and did something and nothing happened, but the times where something happens, you remember yeah. every little detail and right. the things that stand out. And yeah, that's you know, true. The, the, I, you know, one of the things that I've experienced, you've experienced, you just talked about it was pulling an all nighter to get a motorcycle done for a show. Right. I always have this thing like there's no such thing as a motorcycle emergency, you know, in service and things like that. Right. Well, we make our own emergencies. No, yeah, but we, we definitely create a lot of strenuous situations where either we couldn't get the parts in enough time, we had to go do other things, and we just run every time I'm going to do something, just like the event we're going to start tomorrow, and you always wish you had that one extra day or had, you know what I mean? But when you pull an all-nighter, I there's a feeling that your body has that when you, have an all, when you pull an all-nighter that it's just... It's like a whole nother level of, I don't know where it comes from, but it's like an energy that is only present when you when you've worked all the way through a night. That extra adrenaline. Yeah, I don't. It it, it has a, it's like got a metal taste in your mouth, and you're you're tired, you're exhausted, but you, you couldn't sleep if you tried. Yeah, you know, I, I can't even begin to tell you how many of those nights that I've spent. Um, you know, working on bikes all night, you know, especially when my shop was behind my house, mm -hmm. uh, originally. And I mean, oh my God, I mean, my average day was midnight, you know, from 
uh, nine in the morning to midnight anyway. Yeah. And then, you know, when I had to get paint jobs out or we had to get a bike done, you know, I mean, Sturgis was crazy. Oh my God. You know, I mean, I had guys, <laughs> some of my friends that would come over to help and, and they'd just be walking zombies you know they you know but i was used to it i i yeah you know i had done it half my life i had lived like that you know and uh you know fortunately those days are well over for me right um and uh, you know i don't put myself uh the one thing that i do uh, you know with the bikes that we build i don't have any deadlines if there's a deadline it's only because i made it yeah. I'm, Other than that, there's no deadlines. I'm that way too. Like I, I just, I, I try to explain to people, like if I had to charge you to only work on your motorcycle and yeah. not do anything else, it yeah. would, it would make the motorcycle not affordable and it, it just couldn't, you couldn't work. I mean, it takes, you know, I know what I charge to build a bike and it's a certain number of, you know, there's like these thresholds of, if it's this kind of bike, it's, it's, it starts at this and it goes from there. But it's like, I won't take a job on anymore that has a deadline because of that, because I can't charge you what I would need to charge you for that to be the only thing we do. And I can't control who walks through the front door that for tires or service or, you know, the right. other things. Exactly. You and know, I, and I can't work by myself and not have a staff because of the same reason. I've yeah. got to have somebody to change a tire when a tire comes in. I've got to have somebody to do brakes when a brake comes in. You right. Know? And that's where you get your build customers from. A lot of times I do, I've worked on their street glide and they see a bike that we've built and they're like, well, you can do the, how much would you do it for me? You know, I want this. And so you move, you move, you move that down. Oh yeah. Right. No, absolutely. Um, you told me a story one time and I, and I wanted you to tell the listeners that, tell me the story. Um, you said you were on a ride and you saw, you saw a chopper for the first time or a bike that was real stretched out. Yeah. Where you were coming from Laconia or something or were you yeah. out riding? That was, um, 1971. Uh, I was on a, a sports, I had bought, I think I bought it in 70. It was a 64 Sportster. And, you know, I thought it was really cool. You know, I had, uh, you know, I, I had painted it the first year I bought it. And then uh, the second year I, you know, took it all apart, molded the frame and, you know, you know, did it all up, but, you know, still basically stock. And so I was coming home from Laconia and we're riding along and I look in my rearview mirror and I see this bike coming up from behind. It's quite a ways back, and I can see it's, you know, it looks like a chopper. So I'm watching it, and as it got closer, I'm, I'm checking it out, checking it out. It gets up next to me, and, I mean, this is, like, the coolest thing. It's like this long, stretched-out chopper. It looks like it just came right out of California, and, you know, this cool guy sitting way back, you know, big, long front end, you know, it was just so cool. And as it went by, I said, man, that's me. That is me. And so uh, at the end of that season, uh, we I tore my bike all apart. My friend's father had a big machine shop, so we brought the bike down to the machine shop and we cut the neck off it. I stretched the neck 12 inches, uh, you know, 40-something degrees of rake, and we welded a hard tail on, and, uh, you know, high sports to tank. Uh, 19 over Mother's Springer with a 17-inch spool on the front. And uh, it, was, I, one of my, it was probably my, one of my first metal flake jobs. And um, 
I finished that bike and took it to Laconia that year. And it was a really cool bike. I rode the hell out of that bike. Um, probably for, I think I might've kept that for two seasons. And, uh, then I sold it and I, and I got all the money for it, man. I'll tell you what, I was so rich. I, I didn't have to, I didn't have to do anything for months. I sold it for 2,400. <laughs> <laughs> I remember getting that cash. Wow. 2,400 bucks. But, uh, yeah, that was kind of, you know, my first, my next step into the, uh, the custom motorcycle industry. Um, I built, um a couple of rigid type choppers after that. And then probably around 1974, I started following Alan uh, from the magazines. And uh, so I started, you know, using some of his stuff. And, uh, and then I met Alan in 1975 in Detroit. I was telling you a, a big show in Detroit. And, um, and, and also that year at that show, uh, I met Donnie Smith. Um, it was me, Alan, Donnie Smith, and Ed Kerr. And, uh, and I met Tony Carlini, um, Yosemite Sam, Ron Finch. Um, but anyways, uh, I opened up my shop, my first store, my first retail store I opened up in 1975. And Alan sent me like, $2,000 worth of parts on the arm said, yeah. And he just said, listen, I'm going to send you a bunch of parts to sell. Just pay me when you, when you sell the stuff. Right. And that was kind of the start of uh, me doing the digger style, which, you know, we built for quite a few years after that. We did more digger stuff than anybody on the East coast. That's I was going to, that was the next, the, the two next questions I had were tell me about your first shop and uh, when did the digger start? So you, and so let's, can you, Give me kind of like a, a visual recollection of, of your shop. You know, how big was it? Where was it at? What did it, you know, what was the, what was the vibe in it? Like what tools did you have? I mean, what, well, what, did, yeah. what did it consist of back then? Okay. Uh, I built my first shop in 1971. Um, it was in my father's backyard and it was like probably the size of a one and a half car garage. And when you walked in the, the front, when you walked in the door, I had a bench on the right, you know, I had a heating system and racks for pots. And, um, I did everything. I had an, uh, you know, a Lincoln arc welder. That mm -hmm. was it. You know, a tombstone arc welder, same thing everybody had back then. And, um, and then the other half of the shop was a spray booth. And, um, so we'd prep the stuff in that first room. And uh, we did everything there, you know. We we did all the welding, the grinding, um, doing engines, you know, you name it. We did it in that little room, and um, and then I, you know I sprayed it in the other room with just a fan, and I you know I had bought an old oil burner, and uh, that was the heat, and uh, then you know a few years later I put a little addition. It was probably about maybe eight by. 12 edition on the back which we just used for prep and um i was in that shop from i built it in 71 and i was in there until 79 when i moved to bridgewater and i built a big you know built a big building right well it was 
the building was 24 by 40 and I put a full size spray booth in there that we built, you know, I didn't yeah. buy one. And, um, you know, uh, me, my father and my good friend that I grew up with, we built the whole building and, um, and then, you know, over the years I put additions on that, two more additions. And, uh, we did a lot of bikes out of those that, you know, out of my backyard, a real lot. You know, in fact, the first discovery show was filmed, uh, at my shop in, in my backyard. What, so what, I mean, obviously I know why you moved out of, you know, there's, there's obvious reasons why you move out of where, you know, that you went, you said you went into a 12,000 square foot building. And obviously that was to try to, you know, accommodate 10 people and the amount of, you, know, you had a, a backlog of, of bikes being built, you know, um, why, why aren't you, why did you never go? You never went back to there. You, you're in a different place now, but do you, is your business still big enough to where it wouldn't fit in there? Or do you, do you see yourself being in a space again where it's real manageable with just kind of low key or? No, what happened was I had a retail store in Brockton and my shop and everything was in Bridgewater. Okay. My store was only open six to nine at night, uh, five nights a week. And then Saturdays, if I really felt like going in. Right on. Um, and so I would work in Bridgewater all day and then go to the shop at night, then usually go back to the shop after I get out, finish a paint job. And it just got to be too much of a pain in the ass. So I wanted to do a building that I could do, uh, I could, I could do everything. I could, everything would be self-contained. Plus I wanted to get out of my house. Yeah. You know, um, I didn't have customers come into my house at all. Basically, I had the retail store so that I had a place to display the bikes, mm -hmm. a place to, you know, display parts and meet customers. Gotcha. That was the whole thing. And then when I started, you know, it took me I, probably a year and a half to finally get a building, um, you know, and of course, you know, I started at, you know, I wanted to spend, you know, 250 and you know that turned into 350 that turned into five you know it just sure, kept yeah. going up and when i finally got to the point where i was pulling the trigger on it all the orders were flowing in you know um i had lots of bikes to build there was a lot of service that i needed to do because we really weren't a service shop before that so I built what I think was the mo the perfect motorcycle shop. You know, I mean, I designed the whole building. You know, it was just a little, sh it was a shitty, a really shitty, nasty, dirty truck shop. Okay. And I cleaned the whole place up, added, you know, a huge addition, added a second floor, you know, and... I mean, it, we had a big showroom. We probably had, you know, 15 to 20 bikes in the showroom with all kinds of cool stuff. And then we had a really nice parts department, you know, with a parts window and a counter and everything. Sure. And then we had a full service department with six lifts and then a mezzanine above the lifts to put parts. And then we had a paint mixing room, a paint storage room, a big downdraft spray booth. And then we had a, 
another section with a prep booth. And then we had a big fab area with all my machinery and everything. And then I had a clean room that was really nice that had for putting the bikes together. Yeah. And then, you know, I had a nice office right there on the, uh, next to the showroom. And then I had two big offices upstairs and then a full apartment, a full kitchen, uh, full bathroom with a shower. You know, I mean, you could live up there. For those biker build-offs. <laughs> yeah, right. And when I got divorced. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. But, uh, and, and you know, and so realistically what happened was the economy started, you know, going down and we weren't building those $100,000 bikes anymore. But, you know, the problem was almost the whole time I was in that building, I never got any work. I couldn't do any work. Right. I was just running the place, dealing with customers, dealing with people that wanted to stop by and take pictures and look at bikes. And so I, I hardly ever got my hands dirty. You know, I got to do some paint work, but as far as the assembly and everything, you know, I didn't get to do much of that anymore. And so, you know, as the economy started to shit the bed, I, you know, I kind of saw the handwriting on the wall and so I ended up selling the building and moving to where we are now, which is 5,000 square feet. And it's kind of off the road. So I don't have a lot of people just stopping by. Right. I can actually go in and work myself. And I love it over there. It's much more manageable. The overhead is a fraction of what I had in that big building. You know, I mean, my insurance in that building, just my insurance bill was 1500 a week. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that was for the building, everything, the contents in my trucks. You know, it, it was crazy. You know, my wife used to tell me, my ex-wife, she used to tell me how much it cost to run it. And I never believed her. But I believe it now. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I mean, so obviously it was probably a relief when you moved out of there. and, and Yeah, it, it really was afterwards, you know. But, of course, while I was in that building, I worked for uh, Allstate. I was the national spokesperson for Allstate. And that was like the dream job. Oh, my God, you know. I mean, I, I they paid me a lot of money. And, uh, you know, I was on the road, though. I, the last two years I worked for him, I did almost 35 shows a year. Wow. So I was gone all the time. So I had to depend on, you know, the crew to keep things going, which, you know, never like when you're there. No, it's not. I mean, you know, I try to empower everybody that works here with me to kind of take their own ball and run with it and yeah. do their own deal, you know, and I don't want to micromanage people. And you find yourself, it's like you said, I don't get to work on things. I have to make everybody leave me alone to do what it is that I'm doing. Not yeah. not being mean. I mean, it's yeah. not that I don't right. want them to need things from me, but it's like, no. I, I, it's, you get to the point where you forget, you don't forget why you started doing this, but you realize that you don't get to do it for the reasons that you started doing it. You're doing it now to keep it going for other people. And then when they're not, when you know, gratitude is a big thing for me. It's like if, if I know someone's happy to be here and happy to be around me and happy to be doing what we're doing. Well, even if we're doing something shitty, 
if I'm doing it with somebody that that's having you know that that wants to be there for all the right reasons, it's okay. Yeah. But when things get to be where it's like you know people aren't happy, bills. This place doesn't cost less. That's how I try to explain to people like this place doesn't cost less if we do more work. This place doesn't cost us less money if we make more money. And it doesn't cost us more money if we do that either. The rent is what the rent is, and it's due every right, month. And right. we have to we have to make that, you know. So yeah. if we make more than that, then that's just good for all of us. Yeah, right. You know, but they don't they don't ask me how much I made last month so they can adjust my rent. It's like it's you have all yeah. these stresses when yeah. you have right. You know, it's like the old more money, more problems things. Everything everything gets amplified. Yeah, and and you know the um, the thing is the economy. Uh, the last year, last two years, I was in the big shop. The economy had really, really gone down, and the real estate values—oh my God—they dropped unbelievable. You know, um, there was probably a thirty or forty percent drop in the in the real estate values. So, you know, I, I just, uh, you know, it was. So much less stress mm-hmm. moving. Um, and, you know, it's like I say, I'm happy where I'm at. You know, I get, I, I can do everything I need to do. Um, sure, everybody needs more room, but hey, yeah, yeah, you know, you got to make do with what you got. Yeah, push the bikes around a little bit. So yeah, right, better. exactly. Um, you mentioned that in 1975, uh, that was when... Um, Arlen had sent you over a bunch of parts mm-hmm. and that kind of started the, the, the digger scene on, on the East coast or, you know, back East where, you, where you're at. Yeah. Um, a lot of those, when you look like I, I go back and I have like every easy rider from like the, the first one all the way through like 2003 or four. Right. And mm-hmm. you go back and you look at the ones where, you know, you're in there, Donnie's in there, Arlen's in there guys that I have never heard of. And then, you know, home builders or guys that tried it that didn't, didn't end up staying in there. And you don't know where they're at now. Um, a lot of them were sportster based. Yep. And I like, I happen to like sportsters. I, I think they're cool. I'm, you know, where did the negative, where did the negative negativity towards sportsters, when did that start? And what, what do you attribute that to? Well, you know, I am truly a sportster guy by, you know, from way back. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I'm a like pre seventy sportster sure. guy. Um, I grew up on sportsters. Um, I was I rode motorcycles for ten years before I bought my first big twin. Um, and in that ten years, nobody rode big twins. Everybody in our area was on sportsters. Everybody, you know, if you saw a, a big twin, it was some old guy riding a bagger. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, 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 and, you know, I I, uh, I just, I loved working on them. And then, you know, I mean, it just, you know, it, it's funny. Uh, Allen, all of Allen's early bikes were all old Ironheads. And then he started doing big twins, you know. I mean, his first bike was a knucklehead. But after that, it was mostly all Ironheads. Right. Um, and... You know, it was like, I guess, when he started doing more shovel heads, um, I started doing more of them. Because he would make more parts for them. Right. You know, previous to that, everything he made was for iron heads. But then he started doing shovel heads, and he'd build 
shovel head frames. And as soon as he'd come out with a new frame, he'd send me one and I'd build a shovel head. And then, you know, he'd come out with a rubber mount frame and then I'd build a rubber mount, you know? And, um, you know, it just kind of progressed that way. And I guess after a few years, as you get older and you ride, you know, a big twin, you don't want to be riding an iron head. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, of course, the new sports are a little different, but, you know, I mean, and I still have quite a few iron heads. Um, you know, I've just had this thing about, uh, you know, I keep buying them. When I, when I find, you know, a deal I can't refuse, I keep buying them. I mean, I've got a big stash of iron head pots, uh, you know, and I've finally got to the point where, you know, what am I going to do with this stuff, you know? I mean, I've got two iron heads that I'm building right now. Uh, I'm doing a full restoration on a 1970 boat tail. Okay. Um, I, I shouldn't say a full, it's, it's, it's a bike that I'm putting together out of parts, but the motor's all done. Um, and, you know, I've got an original boat tail and, I, you know, I've got most, most of all original 70s parts. Right. Uh, I'm building that one, but I'm building one more really full bore iron head show bike, uh, digger. Yeah. Um, I've got a frame that <laughs> back in the seventies, uh, Alan made a deal with a good friend of mine. Uh, this guy had a deal on tools and Alan traded them, um, a bunch of tools for a one-off single loop frame, front section frame, uh, front end, gas tank, rear fender, fender rails, you know, the whole kit. And so this guy never used it. It sat in his attic since the 70s. And I chased it for probably 10 or 15 years. And, you know, I said, Frank, you're never going to use that. He says, I know, I know, but I just, I hate to sell it, you know? Right. And so finally, um, he had a bike that he wanted to sell. And I told him, you know, I can, I can sell that for you. He says, well, if you can sell this bike for me, he says, then I'll sell you all that stuff. So I sold the stuff for him. And about a year ago, I got all the stuff from him. So I've got that chassis. I've got a motor, the, the, the cases are all polished already. The bottom ends together. Um, the cylinders and heads are all hexed and chromed. And um, so, you know, when I get freed up a little, I'm going to start putting that together. That'll be probably, I would have to say, probably one of my last iron head projects. Yeah. Um, so the, let's see here. Uh, I wrote down no. I don't normally write down notes, but you, you answered a lot of the stuff. Um one of the things that my dad told me a long time ago is like, you got to understand something. He goes, there weren't catalogs full of parts. There weren't, there weren't, there wasn't like every part you could ever want. Like you had to make most of, of what you, what you had. So when did, when did things really start get to the point where was it Arlen that kind of started the parts deal or you know because you see like jammer since 1971 and you see you know drag specialties since 1969 or 68 and you, you have all these people that are you kind of still have some people that are still very active in the industry guys like tom motzko that have been around yeah, forever, yeah. right you know yeah 
that that kind of kind of know this thing and, and there's not you can't google this stuff yeah, there's like a, right. there's like You're a, right. there's a lot of what is archivable in our industry we can go back to about 1980 yeah and other than that you have to go to easy riders to to look at a magazine or in the wind or biker or something like that like that that seems to be the only place that all this stuff is kept yeah well you know it's not quite like they make it out to be like we'll say drag specialties right sure i mean i was in the business i opened my store in 75 i don't think i even knew about drag specialties till probably 1980 you know um i think drag specialties was a very local deal you know just like a lot of those companies you know a lot of the stuff that you saw in easy rider where they were all local companies um yeah you could you know look in the catalog you could look in the back of the magazine and which you know i did um but you know you had to make a lot of pots you know you had to be pretty handy um you know, and I'll tell you, very, very few people ever had TIG machines back then. Everybody had arc welders. Right. You know? Um, but, you know, um, my first, uh, <laughs> the first company that I dealt with a lot, other than Allen, was Gary Bang. Do you know who Gary is? I is. I do. He was, I have a a little tool of his, a timing plug, but Gary Bang owned the Harley dealer here in Tampa. Oh, really? His son is still working for the Furmans. There's, oh, no kidding. Gary Bang owned, um, quick story, you probably know this, but Gary Bang, Harley let their trademark expire on the Barn Shield and right. Gary Bang right. re-trademarked it. And yeah, I mean, Gary, you know, uh, Gary was just, you know, he had the, the, the warehouse in California and, um, you know, I, I I can remember waiting for the UPS guy to come and, and getting a package, you know, a, a, a box of pots from Gary with just a, it'd be a handwritten invoice. And, um, you know, it was like so cool waiting and open up those packages, you know. Right. Um, later on, I became really good friends with Gary. Gary was in the Hamsters for many years. And, you know, we traveled together. I got Gary into getting tattooed. <laughs> yeah, we we went to uh, Donnie Smith's one time. You know, back in back in the early days, we all went to a, a, an event out there, and uh, I I turned him on to my friend Don Nolan in St. Paul, and Gary started. You know, Gary did the whole whole sleeves with Don over the next few years. You know, um, one of the things that I I, I always wondered about is you know your friends with Arlen in California you're in you're in Boston and then you're friends with Donnie and then Ed Kerr is in Pennsylvania I think right yeah. so right now like if I'm working on something in the shop I can take a picture of it and I can text it to you and I can say hey look what I'm working on or right. hey I'm running into this problem what do you know about this or I can FaceTime you or whatever yeah how did how did the flow of information and, and I came into this industry before the internet was really used, you know, the way it's used today. And so, you know, having a catalog and having a magazine really, I learned a lot from that. You'd read a tech article or you'd, you know, yeah. you'd, you'd see the new parts that were coming out. Right. Right. But, or, and I would know, I'd get an email. I'd know you, everyone's going to be in Daytona. Everybody's going to, but how did you guys communicate those kinds of 
did that not happen? Did you not know what was going on until you went to the next show, or were you talking on the phone? I mean, Christ, no, I remember we, we, my parents yelling about long distance charges. Yeah, no, um, I talked to Alan a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, we communicated a real lot, and he would always tell me about the new shit that he was doing. And, um, you know, same with Donnie, not as much, uh, not, not as much. And, you know, we'd get together, um, you know, quite a few times during the year. Uh, I'd go out and visit him. He'd come out and visit me. Um, and, you know, of course we, we, you know, did the major events together, which actually Daytona and Sturgis, there wasn't too many other major events back then. Right. Um, and, um, but you know, it wasn't like we could send pictures back and forth, you right. know? That's what I mean. It's like, yeah. you know, it's, it's just, I don't know how people, I don't know how people communicated. It was like it's snail mail and things were slow, slower back then. So, and you had the two events. So everybody, I feel like because there was only two events and there wasn't the internet to kind of get you that little, that little hush puppy of information you know like oh well i don't i don't have to go I've, i see what they're doing online right yeah so it just i feel like we're losing a part of what built where we're at by yeah. having too many events or not enough people attending the events yeah i i mean the events have certainly changed um i go to a lot of events and, you know, I, I love going to events, you know, I love talking to people and seeing new stuff. And, you know, back then, I mean, you know, Alan would show up in Sturgis, I'd show up in Sturgis, we'd have a whole bunch of new bikes, you know, to show off, you know, all, with all our friends. Right. And, you know, you'd see all the newest and coolest shit. And, you know, like Daytona, you know, the rat's hole was the big deal in Daytona. And if there was a new cool bike at the Rats Hole show, it was like, well, who's this guy? Because we knew, you knew all the builders. Sure. You know, and a lot of them would, you know, you'd become friends with. And then there was some that weren't so friendly, you know. And, um, you know, it was, it was a lot different, you know. It was a real lot different. And, you know... You know, you say what would happen to all these guys. I'll pick up an old magazine and I'll look through and I'll see guys that were really good builders that built a lot of cool shit, but haven't seen or heard from them in 20 plus years, you know, you, and you got to wonder what happened to them. Yeah, there's guys that like predate me being in the industry, but I, I kind of know who they are because I've heard other people like guys like Billy Westbrook, uh, guys like Pat Kennedy. Yeah. That, I don't, I, I know I've seen some of their bikes, but I don't know anything. I don't know anything about them because there's not really, like I said, if you don't have an easy rider, yeah, you're, that's the, what, that's the only thing we have for an encyclopedia of like who, what, and, and, and that kind you of know, stuff. You know, it's funny, you know, those two guys particular, you know, um, you know, I know both of those guys and Billy Westbrook, very talented guy, um, built pretty much exactly the same thing. Every bike looked the same, exactly the same, you know, but that was his thing. He wasn't trying to make anything look different. He was, sure. he had a niche that, you know, all those LA guys were buying. So he didn't need to change it. And Billy came around, he was kind of in our circle for a short time, but 
he didn't have the personality to hang. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, and Pat Kennedy was a little different than that. You know, Pat was a nice guy. Uh, he was cool, but he was, he didn't want to be in a group either. You know, and I'm not just referring to the hamsters, but, you know, in a group of social setting. Yeah. And, and, you know, guys that have, um, you know, who Rick Doss is, mm-hmm. I mean, Rick Doss was, I mean, he made it right to the top real quick, you know, because of CCI though, that was why, but Rick built a pretty cool bike. You know, he had his own style and he went right to the top with, with CCI designing parts. And, you know, he became best friends with Nace who was running CCI. So he had, he had a little bit of an in. Oh, he had not, not, he had a lot of an in, not just a little bit, but then he just disappeared from the face of the earth. You know, he was on top for probably, you know, maybe 10 years, maybe. That's a long time. And then just disappeared, you know. We did a show together, uh, me and him and John Reed. You know who John Reed is? I do know yeah. John Reed. A surly me, English yeah. guy. <laughs> me, him, and John Reed did a show in Germany. It was a 10-day show. Huge, huge Holy show. Shit. Yeah. i never forget. I signed 2,000 posters in one day. I yeah. have writer's cramp. Oh, yeah. It, it was quite a deal. And... um Rick, me and John had a great time together. And John is a real ball buster. And he was constantly busting Rick's balls. And, you know, Rick just wasn't that kind of guy that could take it. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Thin-skinned. But, you know, yeah, like you say, you got to wonder about all these guys that have just disappeared, you know? Do you do you miss the days where everybody would converge on Cincinnati and go to the, the, the V-Twin Expo? And, I mean, do you, do you feel like – I feel like that's missing – I think that's part of what's missing from what we do now. I know drag does MVP, but that's like only drag stuff and it's very insular. It's not like, uh, I felt like the, the party that happened in Cincinnati is where I met a lot of the people that I learned how to do business with and who C- I didn't Cincinnati want to do business with. was uh, awesome. Yeah. I truly miss Cincinnati. You know, I mean, I started going again, Alan got me to go there and you know, I don't even know what year we went very early. Um, actually it was in the eighties and, um, I put more deals together in Cincinnati. I mean, it was a great, great time. You got to see everybody in the industry and you could make all kinds of deals. And the party after was always over the top. Yeah. I truly miss Cincinnati. And you know, the internet took that away. It just, yeah. it, it, it evaporated. Yeah, the internet took that away because people don't need to go and see new products. So they just open up their computer and they can see all they want. But they don't have, you know, I'll tell you a real quick story of something that happened to me a couple of years ago that was really, it's, it, 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 I, it just sticks with me. So um, I'm, I'm friends with, um, with Warren and he and I were doing some, some business with each other. I was selling him a bike and buying some stuff and, um, I went down to Miami and we were hanging out and it, 
we went and had dinner and it got late and I was like, I needed to get a hotel. And he's like, just stay at the house. So I went back and I'm there at the house with, with he and, and his girl. And, you know, he lived, I don't know if you, if you've ever been to Warren's place. No, but, I haven't. So he lives in the house that he and Billy were both brought home from the hospital in that oh, his okay. parents built yeah. and they built it. It's in Miami proper, but yeah. it's on a lake. Yeah. And it was when there was no skyscrapers and, and none of that shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was, and Warren, it's it's his that's his solace that's his peace that's oh i bet you know what i mean yeah and uh so he still lives there today and so i i stayed there and, and we were sitting out on the back in, in the in lanai there the little screened in porch and you know the water's there and it's you're in miami though so you can hear the the noise and you know where you're at and he was he was talking about his how he felt about the motorcycle how the business had become and how things had become and he really wanted to get into airplanes, and he did for a while. He was yep. restoring vintage, like, bombers and shit. Right, and right. he's so fucking talented. Yeah. And he goes, you know, I would leave the motorcycles right now and do the motor the airplane thing. He goes, but I can't get this. And he pointed to me and him and, yeah. a, and, a, and that, that we are in a space because I think of – like I said earlier, how easy it is to get into this business and how hard it is to maintain yourself in your position here yeah, uh, through ethics and morals and doing good work and financially and all those things that he, he did, he wouldn't get that elsewhere. And I think mm -hmm. that's something that we have that's super important that we miss by not having the expo in Cincinnati and, and, you know, and the, and the MVP, I haven't been to it. My dad used to go to it every year, but it's more to me, that's, it's insulated and it's corporate and it's invite and it's it's not the industry. So I don't feel like it's inclusive. You know, there was something about being in a room where you had custom chrome and even Ted's V Twin and drag and, and Biker's Choice that's gone now. Yeah. And, you know, and then you had fueling and, and S you had everybody yeah, yeah, everybody right. wanted to be there. Everybody felt right. like they had to be there. Right, exactly. And you spent the day walking around there, I mean, wearing the carpet out and wearing yeah. the soles of your shoes out. And then afterwards some people went over to this party and some people went over to that party. Yeah. And then some, we would move from party to party. You end up running into the same people that you saw at six o'clock. Yeah. You know, sometimes yeah. you see them at two 30 in the morning. Yeah. You know right. I mean? Right. Yeah. I just, I miss that. You know, when we decided to go to Bonneville, um, and you know, I told Jody, you know, look, if we're going to go to Bonneville, we gotta, we gotta have a bike. We gotta bring a bike. Yeah. And she said, well, I'll, if we build a bike to go to Bonneville, I want to ride it. I'm like, yeah, okay. So I said, well, listen, this is what we got to do. Um, when we go to Cincinnati, um, I'll go around and, you know, see what we can get for sponsors. And that'll tell us if we can afford to go to Bonneville. So we go to Cincinnati and I go around, and uh, so the first guy I see is Phil Day, you know, from Daytech. Mm -hmm. He says, no problem. He says, I'll build you a frame. Right. I says, okay. And then uh, I go over to Bert Baker. This is what we're going to do, Bert. No problem. I'll give you a transmission. Uh, okay. Then we go over to Jim's, and I said, you know, tell him. He says, yep, I'll give you a motor. And then we go to R and R cycle, and they said, "Oh, we'll we'll build the motor and we'll put our heads on it." And I mean, I had the whole bike, you know, that I got in a matter of one day at Cincinnati. I procured enough parts to build that whole bike. 
Where else could you possibly ever do that? You couldn't do it anywhere else because you couldn't do that over the phone. No. You know, and there's nowhere at all that all those manufacturers would be in one place anymore. It's crazy. Do you think it could ever be done again? No. No, it definitely can't because, you know, Cincinnati was, you know, the idea was to debut new products. That was the whole theory behind Cincinnati. That's what it was all about. Right. Uh, And that can't happen anymore because of the internet, you know? As somebody who who made made your way through um, the last fifty years, how imp- explain to me the importance of a magazine article on your shop or one of your feature and a feature on one of your bikes forty years ago compared to twenty years ago compared to today? Well, I mean, back forty years ago, it was real important. Um, did it make the phone ring? Um, it, it, you know, it's not like your phone was ringing off the wall. It wasn't like that, but it brought a lot of awareness to you amongst your peers Mm -hmm. and amongst customers, amongst future customers. Um, you know, in, in magazine stuff, I was very fortunate. You know, I've had over 150 magazine covers, just covers. And I was, I became really good friends with every magazine editor. They were all my friends. So, you know, um, I did get some, you know, special, but, you know, I, they never used anything that wasn't worthy of, no, I going there, yeah, and I didn't you know? mean that. I just meant like from yeah. the standpoint of that's being taken away from us too. It's being chipped away and chipped away and chipped away to where there's really, I mean, I I I I have a sore spot. You know, Easy Riders just they they can't. They Are they can't, even still there? They can't. Well, I, apparently somebody has it now, and it's like they keep reappropriating the name in different spaces when it's not. If fucking Led Zeppelin came out right now and said, listen, we're coming out of retirement, we're almost 80, and we're going to come out of retirement, we're going to do a world tour, and they were going to play Led Zeppelin 1 and 2, even with Bonham's kid as the drummer, they'd fucking sell out every arena in the world. Absolutely. But if they came out and said, listen, we're not doing any of that shit, we're older, we're into classic music now, so we're just doing classical, do you think any, they wouldn't sell out a fucking theater. Right. You see what I'm saying? So. They keep taking this Easy Rider's name, and, and it's like, I don't want to disparage Indian because I personally feel like Polaris has done a very good job. Yeah. I don't understand. I They've done a good enough job that I don't understand why they paid that money for the Indian name, but that's a whole nother other conversation. They build a good motorcycle. By yeah. every measurable metric, yeah, those right. new bikes are better than Harleys. Right. From from a mechanical and an engineering standpoint. Right. Not, are you riding one? I'm not. No. I, why? Why? Because it's a brand new bike and I don't want a fucking payment right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But to me, that what I'm saying is, is like Easy Rider, it's a different magazine with that name and that logo on it. And I don't understand, you know, for a while it was supposed to be a coffee table style book for LA guys that wear skinny jeans. And, yeah. But that um, didn't work out too well. No, it didn't work because it wasn't Easy Riders. Yeah. And then that uh, Pelosi guy bought it. Nice enough guy, but. He, 
it was like kind of half in, half out on 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 what Easy Riders was supposed to be, and they keep bringing you know digging Dave Nichols up and bringing him into the into the party, which Dave Nichols drove that ship for how many years? Twenty five, yeah, right, thirty. Right. I mean, yeah, obviously knows what the fuck he's doing. Yeah, and then now there's somebody else that has it again. That they're you know that Pelosi guy let it go and it goes back to however that is, and now they're trying it again. But it's like, is Dave still the editor? I think so. Yeah, you have to call him one of these days and see how he's doing. I mean, I never see it. I never see Easy Rider. I mean, I haven't seen it in, you know, I was in, like, I think the second issue, and then I was in, it like, the fourth issue or something like that, you know, when it came, just right. came out. Yeah. And then I haven't seen it since. Yeah. You know? And it's like, I, you know, in, and I, I don't begrudge anybody for trying to make a mark. But, no. But it's like, if you're going to do something like that, do what it's... People have expectations. Yeah. Right? If I take you to a steakhouse, you yeah. think you're going to get a good steak. Yeah. You're not going to order spaghetti. You right. know what I mean? Well, uh, are we going for steak or spaghetti? Uh, whatever you want to go. We're, we're almost <laughs> done here. We can wrap this thing up here in a minute because I'm starving. Well, you know, getting to the magazine stuff, you know, Chris is so lucky. You know, Chris's magazine, Cycle Source, is like, I think, like the last hurrah for magazines. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I love his magazine. I think he's doing a great job, but I mean, look at the work he puts into it, you know, and the thing is, uh, you know, one, the, probably the biggest reason why magazines went down the tube was just because of advertisers, you know, they lost advertisers, they, they had so many advertisers that weren't paying anymore, yep. you know, it was the same old story, you know, I pick up Easy Rider from when I, you know, when it came out originally here and it had hardly any advertisers in it, you know, yeah. not enough to really support it. Yeah. Support it. Um, you know, it, it's, um, you know, there's a coffee table style magazine book. Right. And then there's, you know, cycle source, which is a magazine. Yeah. Um, but you know, who's going to pay, 25 or 30 bucks for a you know bi-monthly magazine no and that's what it's getting to cost to produce it and so you right. know what i mean it's I, I right chris is the last man standing yeah did you ever read the the rotter's journal i didn't but i i i know what you're talking about okay the guy that did the rotter's journal his name was steve coonan he was a photographer he used to shoot all my stuff for easy rider Great guy. You know, me mm -hmm. and him became good friends. And then, but he was always a real heavy hot rod guy. And he started the Rodders Journal, which is probably, in my estimation, the best magazine. Is, it, that isn't even a magazine. The best book that they ever come out with for hot rods. I mean, it was awesome. I loved getting it and looking at, you know, it was just a first class deal. Right. I don't even remember how much it cost, but whatever it cost, you, you would pay, pay yeah. because it was that good. First class. I haven't seen it in quite a while. And I don't even know if Steve's still doing it, to be honest with you. But I always thought that if somebody did a motorcycle magazine, um, uh, the Rodders Journal was mainly restorations of old hot rods and custom cars. And I always thought if somebody did a magazine with just restoration 
of customs. Right. You know, how cool would that be? Dig up the old customs that you find behind the... the right. In, that's like the only thing I can think of. <laughs> John Jessup said an easy rider joke john jessup told me a couple years ago that he wants to do a fox hunt where are they now (laughs) oh my god you know i used to do uh whenever there was a bike a a new england bike right being shot i was the one that went and got the fox hunt girl really yeah they would fly in from wherever they were and i'd go pick them up at the hotel and bring them to the photo shoot right (laughs) And my big thing was how they, when, when I knocked on that hotel room door and they came to the door, the way they looked when they came to the door and the way they looked in the studio, two completely different women. My God, I'd say, holy shit, how are they going to make this girl look good? But they always did. Fucking makeup, man. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And no clothes helped, you right, know? Yeah, yeah, no clothes helped. Yeah, yeah. You, you divert your eyes. Yeah. You want to go get some food? I'd love to. All right, buddy. Thank you for doing this. No problem. All right.